Section 3 of Psychological Warfare This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinberger Chapter 2a The Function of Psychological Warfare, Part 1 Psychological warfare in the broad sense consists of the application of parts of the science called psychology to the conduct of war. In the narrow sense, psychological warfare comprises the use of propaganda against an enemy, together with such military operational measures as may supplement the propaganda. Propaganda may be described in turn as organized persuasion by nonviolent means. War itself may be considered to be, among other things, a violent form of persuasion. Thus, if an American fire raid burns up a Japanese city, the burning is calculated to dissuade the Japanese from further warfare by denying the Japanese further physical means of war and by simultaneously hurting them enough to cause surrender. If after the fire raid we drop leaflets telling them to surrender, the propaganda can be considered an extension of persuasion, less violent this time, and usually less effective, but nevertheless an integral part of the single process of making the enemy stop fighting. Neither warfare nor psychology is a new subject. Each is as old as man. Warfare, being the more practical and plain subject, has a far older written history. This is especially the case since much of what is now called psychology was formerly studied under the heading of religion, ethics, literature, politics, or medicine. Modern psychological warfare has become self-conscious in using modern scientific psychology as a tool. In World War II, the enemies of the United States were more fanatical than the people and leaders of the United States. The consequence was that the Americans could use and apply any expedient psychological weapon which either science or our version of common sense provided. We did not have to square it with emperor myths, the Fuhrer principle, or some other rigid fanatical philosophy. The enemy enjoyed the positive advantage of having an indoctrinated army and people. We enjoyed the countervailing advantage of having skeptical people, with no inward theology that hampered our propaganda operations. It is no negligible matter to be able to use the latest findings of psychological science in a swift, bold manner. The scientific nature of our psychology puts us ahead of opponents wrapped up in dogmatism, who must check their propaganda against such articles of faith as Aryan racialism, or the Hegelian philosophy of history. Psychological Warfare as a Branch of Psychology Good propaganda can be conducted by persons with no knowledge of formal psychology. The human touch, the inventive mind, the forceful appeal, things such as these appear in the writings of gifted persons. Thomas Paine never read a word of Freud or Pavlov, yet Paine's arguments during the Revolutionary War played subtly on every appeal which a modern psychologist could catalogue. But war cannot, in modern times, assume a statistical expectation of talent. Psychology makes it possible for the able but ordinary statesman or officer to calculate his persuasion systematically and to obtain by planning those results which greater men might hit upon by genius. What can psychology do for warfare? In the first place, the psychologist can bring to the attention of the soldier those elements of the human mind which are usually kept out of sight. He can show how to convert lust into resentment, individual resourcefulness into mass cowardice, friction into distrust, prejudice into fury. He does so by going down to the unconscious mind for his source materials. During World War II, the fact that Chinese babies remain unimpeded while they commit a nuisance 
while Japanese babies are either intercepted or punished if they make a mess in the wrong place, was found to be of significant importance in planning psychological warfare. See below, page 154. In the second place, the psychologist can set up techniques for finding out how the enemy really does feel. Some of the worst blunders of history have arisen from miscalculation of the enemy's state of mind. By using the familiar statistical and questionnaire procedures, the psychologist can quiz a small cross-section of enemy prisoners and from the results estimate the mentality of an entire enemy theater of war at a given period. If he does not have the prisoners handy, he can accomplish much the same end by an analysis of the news and propaganda which the enemy authorities transmit to their own troops and people. By establishing enemy opinion and morale factors, he can hazard a reasoned forecast as to how the enemy troops will behave under specific conditions. In the third place, the psychologist can help the military psychological warfare operator by helping him maintain his sense of mission and of proportion. The deadliest danger of propaganda consists of it being issued by the propagandist for his own edification. This sterile and ineffectual amusement can disguise the complete failure of the propaganda as propaganda. There is a genuine pleasure in talking back, particularly to an enemy. The propagandist, especially in wartime, is apt to tell the enemy what he thinks of him, or to deride enemy weaknesses. But to have told the Nazis, for example, you Germans are a pack of murderous baboons, and your Hitler is a demented oaf, your women are slobs, your children are halfwits, your literature is gibberish, and your cooking is garbage, and so on, would have stiffened the German will to fight. The propagandist must tell the enemy those things which the enemy will heed. He must keep his private emotionalism out of the operation. The psychologist can teach the propaganda operator how to be objective, systematic, cold. For combat operations, it does not matter how much a division commander may dislike the enemy. For psychological warfare purposes, he must consider how to persuade them, even though he may privately thirst for their destruction. The indulgence of hatred is not a working part of the soldier's mission. To some it may be helpful, to others not. The useful mission consists solely of making the enemy stop fighting by combat or other means. But when the soldier turns to propaganda, he may need the advice of a psychologist in keeping his own feelings out of it. Finally, the psychologist can prescribe media, radio, leaflets, loudspeakers, whispering agents, returned enemy soldiers, and so forth. He can indicate when and when not to use any given medium. He can, in conjunction with operations and intelligence officers, plan the full use of all available psychological resources. He can coordinate the timing of propaganda with military, economic, or political situations. The psychologist does not have to be present in person to give this advice. He does not have to be a man with an M.D. or a Ph.D. and years of postgraduate training. He can be present in the manuals he writes, in the indoctrination courses for psychological warfare officers he sets up, in the current propaganda line he dictates by radio. It is useful to have him in the field, particularly at the higher command headquarters, but he is not indispensable. The psychologist in person can be dispensed with. The methods of scientific psychology cannot. Further on throughout this book, reference will be made to current psychological literature. The general history of psychology is described in readable terms in Gregory Zilborg and George W. Henry, A History of Medical Psychology, New York, 1941, and in Lowell S. Selling, Men Against Madness, New York, 1940, Cheap Edition, 1942. Propaganda can be conducted by rule of thumb, but only a genius can make it work well by playing his hunches. It can become true psychological warfare, scientific in spirit, and developed as a teachable skill, only by having its premises clearly stated, its mission defined, 
its instruments put in systematic readiness, and its operations subject to at least partial check only by the use of techniques borrowed from science. Of all the sciences, psychology is the nearest, though anthropology, sociology, political science, economics, area studies, and other specialties all have something to contribute, but it is psychology which indicates the need of the others. Psychological Warfare as a Part of War An infantry officer does not need to study the whole nature of war in order to find his own job. Tradition, military skill, discipline, sound doctrine, these have done the job for him. Sun Tzu, Vigidius, Frederick, Clausewitz, and a host of lesser writers on war have established the place of combat in war and have appraised its general character. How much the traditional doctrines may be altered in the terrible light of atomic explosion, no one knows. But though the weapons are novel, the wielders of the weapons will still be men. The motives and weaknesses within war remain ancient and human, however novel and dreadful the mechanical expedients adopted to express them. Warfare as a whole is traditionally well-defined, and psychological warfare can be understood only in relation to the whole process. It is no mere tool to be used on special occasion. It has become a pervasive element in the military and security situation of every power on earth. Psychological warfare is a part of war. The simplest, plainest thing which can be said of war, any sort of war, anywhere, any time, is that it is an official fight between men. Combat, killing, and even large-scale group struggle are known elsewhere in the animal kingdom, but war is not. All sorts of creatures fight, but only men declare, wage, and terminate war, and they do so only against other men. Formally, war may be defined as the reciprocal application of violence by public armed bodies. If it is not reciprocal, it is not war. The killing of persons who did not defend themselves is not war, but slaughter, massacre, or punishment. If the bodies involved are not public, their violence is not war. Even our enemies in World War II were relatively careful about this distinction because they did not know how soon or easily a violation of the rules might be scored against them. To be public, the combatants need not be legal, that is, constitutionally set up. It suffices, according to international usage, for the fighters to have a reasonable minimum of numbers, some kind of identification, and a purpose which is political. If you shoot your neighbor, you will be committing mere murder. But if you gather twenty or thirty friends together, tie a red handkerchief around the left arm of each man, announce that you are out to overthrow the government of the United States, and then shoot your neighbor as a counter-revolutionary impediment to the new order of things, you can have the satisfaction of having waged war. In practical terms, this means that you will be put to death for treason and rebellion, not merely for murder. Finally, war must be violent. According to the law of modern states, all the way from Iceland to the Yemen, economic, political, or moral pressure is not war. War is the legalization in behalf of the state of things which no individual may lawfully do in time of peace. As a matter of fact, even in time of war, you cannot kill the enemy unless you do so on behalf of the state. If you had shot a Japanese creditor of yours privately, or even shot a Japanese soldier when you yourself were out of uniform, you might properly and lawfully have been put to death for murder, either by our courts or by the enemies. This is among the charges which recur in the war trials. The Germans and Japanese killed persons whom even war did not entitle them to kill. The governments of the modern world are jealous of their own monopoly of violence. War is the highest exercise of that violence, and modern war is no simple reversion to savagery. 
The general staffs would not be needed if war were only an uncomplicated orgy of homicide, a mere getting mad and throat-cutting season in the life of man. Quite to the contrary, modern war, as a function of modern society, reflects the institutional political complexity from which it comes. A modern battle is a formal, ceremonialized, and technically intricate operation. You must kill just the right people, in just the right way, with the right timing, in the proper place, for avowed purposes. Otherwise, you make a mess of the whole show, and, what is worse, you lose. Why must you fight just so and so, there and not here, now and not then? The answer is simple. You are fighting against men. Your purpose in fighting is to make them change their minds. It is figuratively true to say that the war we have just won was a peculiar kind of advertising campaign designed to make the Germans and Japanese like us and our way of doing things. They did not like us much, but we gave them alternatives far worse than liking us so that they became peaceful. Sometimes individuals will be unpersuadable. Then they must be killed or neutralized by other purely physical means, such as isolation or imprisonment. Some Nazis, perhaps including the Fuhrer himself, found our world repellent or incomprehensible and died because they could not make themselves surrender. In the Pacific, many Japanese had to be killed before they became acceptable to us. But such is man that most individuals will stop fighting at some point short of extinction. That point is reached when one of two things happens. Either the defeated people may lose their sense of organization, fail to decide on leaders and methods, and give up because they can no longer fight as a group. This happened to the American Southerners in April 1865. The President and Cabinet of the Confederate States of America got on the train at Richmond. The men who got off farther down the line were refugees. Something happened to them and to the people about them so that Mr. Davis no longer thought of himself as President Davis, and other people no longer accepted his commands. This almost happened in Germany in 1945, except for Admiral Dönitz. Or, the defeated people can retain their sense of organization and can use their political organization for the purpose of getting in touch with the enemy, arranging the end of the war, and preparing through organized means to comply with the wishes of the conquerors. That happened when Britain acknowledged American independence, when the Boers recognized British sovereignty, when Finland signed what Russia had dictated, and when Japan gave up. Sometimes these things are mixed. The people might wish to make peace, but may find that their government is not recognized by the enemy. Or the victors may think that they have smashed the enemy government when the new organization is simply the old one under a slightly different name, but with the old leaders and the old ideas still prevailing. It is plain that whatever happens, wars are fought to effect a psychological change in the antagonist. They are then fought for a psychological end unless they are wars of extermination. These are rare. The United States could not find a people on the face of the earth whose ideas and language were unknown to all Americans. Where there is a chance of communication, there is always the probability that one of the antagonistic organizations, governments, which have already cooperated to the extent of meeting one another's wishes to fight, will subsequently cooperate on terms of primary advantage to the victors. Since the organizations comprise human beings with human ways of doing things, the change must take place in the minds of those specific individuals who operate the existing government, or in the minds of enough other people for that government to be overthrown. The fact that war is waged against the minds, not the bodies, of the enemy is attested by the comments of military writers of all periods. The dictum of Karl von Clausewitz that war is politics continued by other means is simply the modern expression of a truth recognized since antiquity. War is a kind of persuasion, 
uneconomical, dangerous, and unpleasant, but effective when all else fails. End of section 3. Read by Eli Bishop, San Francisco, March 7, 2021.